Well, welcome everybody. It's lovely to see such a good turnout. I'm Francesca Klug. I'm your chair for this evening. Uh, I'm director of the Human Rights Futures Project at the Center for the Study of Human Rights here at the LSE. And I think she knows no introduction. This is, needs no introduction. This is Shami Chakrabarti sitting next to me. Before we get to the exciting bit when we listen to her, I've been given about four pages of housekeeping notes. So uh, wait for it. The beady-eyed among you might have also noticed that not only was I down to chair this evening in some of the promotional material, but also to be a respondent, which basically means that when Shami is finished speaking, I will say a few things and then abuse my position as chair to ask her the first couple of questions. But don't worry, there'll still be a good half an hour for Q&A. So while we're having a little chat, you can either talk about it among yourselves or you can listen in, but you might want to start preparing some questions to ask her. Um, or not. <laughs> uh, we at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights are very proud and pleased to be hosting this year's political quarterly lecture by Shami with the stimulating, some might say, provocative title, Citizens' Privileges or Human Rights, The Great Bill of Rights Swindle. Could be a detective novel, couldn't it, the title? As a member of the Political Quarterly or PQ editorial board, I can vouch for the fact that we look forward to publishing Shami's lecture in a future issue, so look out for it, those of you who don't manage to get it all down in your notes this evening. If any of you are unfamiliar with PQ, it is the journal of the moment. Bet you didn't realise that. But when I was a student here at the LSC in prehistoric times, that is the mid and late 1970s, the raging debate on the lips of every student was the Miliband-Poulancis debate. But now, the Miliband-Poulancis debate has been overtaken by the Miliband-Hattersley debate. That is, David Miliband rather than his father, Ralph Miliband, versus Roy Hattersley, the former deputy leader of the Labour Party. And it all started in the last edition of PQ. So if you want to keep your fingers on the pulse, I would take out a subscription right now this evening. How am I doing, Emma? Emma, how am I doing? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and just in case there is anyone still in this room who's unfamiliar with Political Quarterly, it was founded in 1930. The journal's tradition is of publishing jargon-free but intellectually challenging articles on topical political and public policy issues in, wait for it, plain English. What is more, I know you're all really excited about this, <laughs> copies of the issue are available free of charge outside. Don't all rush out now at once. But at the end, you can pick up one of these and just as exciting, well, nearly as exciting, sorry, Emma, uh, Common Sense, Reflections on the Human Rights Act by um, Francesca Clug. By Francesca Clug, but published by Liberty. So that's the link between us. That's it, by the way. That is the only link between us. Now, in terms of timing... <laughs> Shami will speak for no more than 40 minutes, after which I will kick off the Q&A, as I said, for about 10 minutes before opening it up to all of you. The event will finish no later than 8, at which point those who can stay on are invited for a drink, 
but I won't tell you where <laughs> until the end to keep you all bristling with anticipation during the lecture. The event is being recorded, I'll have you know, so all this is already going to be shown to the world, oh my God. And it's hope technology permitting that a podcast of the event, including the Q&A, will be made available online. Now, this is the really difficult bit for me because I don't understand a word of it, so I'm going to read it. <laughs> for those wishing to discuss or comment on the event using Twitter, I've never seen one, never heard one, but I know it exists, the suggested hashtag for the event is hashtag LSEHRA as apparently dis displayed on the slide behind me. Finally, please switch off your mobiles. Don't let a mobile spoil your lecture, to quote the guy in the orange ad in the films, if you know the one I mean. Turning at last to what we've all been waiting for, Shami Chakrabarti. She first joined Liberty, or the National Council for Civil Liberties, as in-house counsel on the 10th of September 2001. That is, the 10th of September 2001. You will note the date, what happened the next day. No causation, by the way, those conspiracy theorists among you. I think that's called... <laughs> I think that's called hitting the ground running. Now, Shami's been Director of Liberty since September 2003, and as a former member of staff of that august organisation, I think I'm qualified to say she is the most inspirational and effective director I have known. No offence to previous directors if you happen to be here. Shami also has a link with our university. She graduated from the LSE with a degree in law in 1991, only one lifetime ago rather than two like me, and she was called to the bar in 1994. She worked as a lawyer in the Home Office from 1996 until 2001 for governments of both persuasions. This, I note, has stood her in good stead. In honing the capacity to demonstrate impeccable impartiality in annoying all governments equally, regardless of political persuasion. Shami has many more strings to her bow, and I won't embarrass her by reading any more of them out, except that you'll be interested to know she became one of six independent assessors on the Leveson inquiry into the ethics of the UK press. Shami's greatest accolade, in my view, is to have inspired a song. How many of us can say that? By the Dastards. Now, I didn't put, mispronounce that. By the Dastards in 2005. It starts, don't worry, I'm not going to sing. I will spare you that. I turn on my TV. The only one I want to see is Shami Chakrabarti. <laughs> well, tonight you're in luck. You can see her live. I give you Shami Chakrabarti. You probably need a drink straight away after that. I know I, know I do. Thank you, Professor Clug, OBE. <laughs> I told her there would be death on the stage if she said that, so excuse us. Um, it's, a, it's a daunting privilege to, to, to give this year's political quarterly lecture. 
at such an important and challenging time for human rights and progressive discourse, not just in the United Kingdom, but around the world. Um, after all that, Murth, you'll forgive me just mentioning France, because I can't be the only one whose thoughts have been in France today. And all I can do is wish people there um, every sympathy, my solidarity, and, and, and hope that they will find the kind of stored-up strength that the people of Norway had to find, it seems, all too all too short a time ago. So I find myself dwelling on a number of contradictions in this moment. The contradiction of those who support human rights ideals and struggles abroad whilst denigrating them at home. The further contradiction of seeking international cooperation in every societal enterprise from fighting crime to combating climate change while simultaneously undermining international human rights values and structures. The contradiction of those who seek to assert national sovereignty over human rights adjudication by scrapping the means of allowing British judges so to adjudicate the Human Rights Act. The contradiction of those from across the political spectrum at times who, who preach law and order as a means of holding ordinary people to account but attack the rule of law when it acts as a check on the most powerful. The grand contradiction, even swindle as I call it, of promoting the idea of a new Bill of Rights, not as a means of enhancing, extending or entrenching rights and freedoms in the United Kingdom, but to dilute or even dismantle their protection. So the underlying context is of a post-war universal framework of fundamental rights and freedoms that's been under threat for some time. Not just from tyrants and terrorists who understandably never supported it in the first place, but from too many so-called Western Democrats who seek to abandon it in freedom's name. At Liberty, NCCL, and over 78 years of campaigning for rights and freedoms, we've never taken complete consensus over these values for granted. We never flinch from making the underlying argument for human rights and building it on two foundations. Firstly, the inherently precious nature of each individual human life and the need to cherish, respect and protect it. This ideal of human dignity necessitates some modicum of respect even for those who fail to respect others and who have perhaps lost even their own self-respect. In a modern media discourse, which so often pits the forces of faith and reason as polar opposites, notably on issues of the human rights value of equality, I'm constantly struck by the ease with which many people from all the great world faith communities feel able to embrace this basis for human rights. But additionally and alternatively, the second foundation is on the idea that democracy is the least worst way to run a civilised society and that it simply cannot sustain without a small bundle of non-negotiable rights and freedoms underpinning and underpinned by the rule of law. And of course, common understanding of democracy is invariably that of periodic elections and of power and authority to govern and legislate passing to those who win them or those who are able to negotiate coalitions. But consider the impossibility of democracy without rights and freedoms protected by law. 
the ease with which popular leadership might attack minorities, including political minorities, censor the press, disrupt and arrest opponents, undermine the justice system, even delay further elections or interfere with their free and fair administration. This has happened in my lifetime and in yours all over the world. Now, whilst it's become a common refrain to set up democracy in tension with human rights, in truth, it cannot survive and thrive without them. At best, it can be something approaching democracy today, mob rule tomorrow, and tyranny for some time after that. But this evening isn't primarily for this foundational argument. Tonight, I attempt to discuss the havers and eaters of the human rights cake who think we can slice, dice and sugarcoat it to suit our convenience at any given moment without ever holding ourselves open to irritation, inconvenience, challenge or account. The great British Bill of Rights swindle is an attempted self-deception. A deception both of those who were for and against the notion of human rights. It's an attempt to pick and choose which and crucially whose freedoms are convenient for protection at any given time. This is populism masquerading as policy and aspiring to be law. And so it's potentially destructive to law, politics and the values that undermine democracy itself. Notwithstanding the necessary interdependence between the rule of law and democratic politics, there have, of course, been perennial debates as to the strengths, weaknesses and limits of each. This has perhaps been especially so in a constitution built upon a fairy tale of parliamentary sovereignty. Now, to be clear, I don't call it a fairy tale for lack of fondness for it, and certainly not out of any disrespect for Parliament, where many important human rights struggles have been won even in recent years. My concern is that this sometimes sentimental fiction has ignored the awesome power, not of lawyers and judges in our system, but of the executive, which often assumes the cloak of parliamentary sovereignty, not just to put itself above the law, but to dominate parliament itself. There have been two other constant features, it seems to me, of our traditional British debate over human rights protection. Firstly, the idea that judges are somehow democratically illegitimate and inherently suspect, a roadblock to reform. This is closely connected with the failure to see rights and freedoms and the rule of law as foundational to all civilised societies, especially democratic ones. In my youth, here at the LSE, it was often prevalent on the left of politics and coupled with a class-based analysis of both the judiciary and wider world. Its famous and most credible exponent was probably the late, great John Griffith. And to be fair, one could certainly see some justification for it in the context of a previous generation of judges clashing with municipal government over economic interests in the 1980s. By the 1990s, however, the mid-1990s, high-profile tensions between judiciary and executive were more usually over protecting homeless asylum seekers than the property rights of ratepayers. Perhaps that's why we now witness the irony of right-of-centre, sometimes considerably right-of-centre politicians, berating independent judges, whether domestic or international, for being part of an unelected elite 
and insufficiently tough on foreigners, criminals, especially foreign criminals. Such jibes may smack of the toff calling the kettle black, but they should serve, I think, as a chilling reminder of the importance of promoting both greater demographic diversity in our judiciary and constitutional literacy in our politics and wider society. Secondly, and in strange counterpoint to the first complaint, we were told that bills of rights are not necessary in this country because freedom fills the air and flows in the water. And if in doubt, the common law will provide. So if the traditional left-wing knee-jerk was to distrust the referees with constitutional documents to interpret, right-of-centre complacency thought they could manage and perhaps even better manage without them. Both of these attitudes would require fundamental review in the dramatic early years of the 21st century. New Labour in formation in opposition became interested in constitutional reform. Others, including others here, are far better qualified to reflect or remember and comment on why this was the case. Perhaps a genuine belief in radicalism with responsibility, perhaps an understandable courting of long-term liberal concerns, perhaps John Smith's legacy or Professor Clugg's tenacity. In any event, and though it's often forgotten now, the Human Rights Act passed in 1998 with cross party support and notwithstanding the anxieties of a press worried about the first explicit right to personal privacy in our law and a church worried about equality protection. Of course those concerns may seem particularly poignant in the light of more recent events and debates. Nonetheless each secured a special mention in the Act reminding the courts the particular importance of free speech and freedom of thought, conscience and religion, respectively. For my own part, I believe such special pleadings to be far less important to the legal operation of the Act than the fact that expression and conscience are, of course, themselves fundamental rights enumerated and protected in the Act and the Convention it encapsulates. Yes, inevitably, personal privacy and free expression sometimes sit in tension but they also often march hand in hand. Ask any journalist why he will never give up his anonymous sources, or so many writers, centuries before even the advent of the internet, why it's sometimes important to be able to publish under an assumed name. And look not just at the difficult balancing judgments on the fault line between privacy and speech, but the many occasions when the convention has in practice protected journalistic freedom. In turn, and (coughs) it's not particularly surprising, traditional theology and faith communities will sometimes rub up against equal treatment protection. However, I think such communities might reflect on the broad, enduring value of freedom of thought, conscience and religion. The right to subscribe to a recognised religion, of course. Equally, the right not to subscribe at all. But surely just as, or even more importantly, the right to be a heretic in any faith or political community, and sometimes by so being, to keep relevant debate in that community alive. 
Post-war fundamental rights and freedoms had, of course, been settled by a generation well-versed in existential threats to people and democracy, including threats that come from both radical movements and national governments with at least initial popular support. The social and economic rights of the Universal Declaration were given effect in Britain by progressive politics and a national health service, welfare state and public education system that improved the life chances of vast swathes of the population. But it was a later Labour government that enhanced civil and political rights by granting the right of individual petition to the European Court of Human Rights in 1966. Extremely fittingly, and not before time therefore, the Human Rights Act of 1998 finally allowed domestic debate and decision-making around the rights and freedoms in the Convention on Human Rights, the ECHR. Now, notwithstanding the learned nature of the present audience, it's perhaps just as well to list a small bundle of protections as the wonderful and much-missed Tom Bingham did at Liberty's 71st anniversary conference in 2009. The right to life and absolute prohibitions on torture, degrading treatment and slavery. The right against arbitrary detention and to a fair trial, including the rule against retrospective punishment. Due process rights with a long domestic tradition. Respect for personal privacy and family life, freedom of thought, conscience and religion. Free expression and association. The right to education, peaceful enjoyment of property and to participate in elections. Rights that must inevitably be qualified, not least by the need to protect the rights of others, but nonetheless vital to human beings as social creatures, rubbing along together in democratic society. And then, in my view, the key to the human rights kingdom, not least because of the ease with which majorities will trade away and compromise the rights of disenfranchised minorities, whether children or asylum seekers, when there is no immediate loss to themselves. The principle of non-discrimination in the application of human rights. In legal speak, equal treatment. In human speak, empathy or mutuality of respect. It is, in essence, the opposite of the hypocrisy and double standards that can so undermine any value system or civilization. As Rabinda Singh, you see, as he then was, now Mr Justice Singh, pointed out in his excellent 2003 LSE lecture, Equality and Neglected Virtue, this is the means by which legal discipline and democratic politics perhaps most potently work in combination to protect the human rights of the vulnerable. But to return to Lord Bingham, which of these rights, I ask, would we wish to discard? Are any of them trivial, superfluous, unnecessary? Are any of them un-British? There may be those who would like to live in a country where these rights are not protected, but I am not of their number. So the Human Rights Act brought home the wisdom of generations around the world, but its original genius lies in its exquisite balancing of the rule of law with parliamentary sovereignty and a framework that can simultaneously link the United Kingdom to Europe, common law jurisdictions and the wider democratic world. This amazing balancing feat is achieved by way of four crucial conversations that are built into this modern progressive bill of rights.
Firstly, the link between domestic and international human rights discourse is achieved by way of Section 2, which provides that domestic courts and tribunals must take into account Strasbourg jurisprudence when adjudicating over convention rights. And this may seem obvious common sense, given that disappointed claimants have, in any event, the right to petition the European Court once domestic remedies are exhausted. However, it's important that the language creates a duty to consider but not be bound by the international court. The court has its authority in a treaty and thus binds governments rather than local courts. By the way, those governments enjoy considerable latitude as to how to implement the judgments. Thus, the traffic is not all one way. And an internationally respected United Kingdom judiciary can actively participate in the development of Strasbourg jurisprudence, including by way of occasional disagreement, and can provide a vital link between the common law and civil law world. The second vital democratic dialogue in the Human Rights Act is between the judiciary and parliament. And this is facilitated by way of sections three and four of the Act, which require, on the one hand, that all legislation must be read compatibly with convention rights so far as it is possible to do so, but further provide that when a compatible reading of primary legislation is not possible, parliamentary intention to the contrary being crystal clear, the judicial remedy of a declaration of incompatibility will have only moral and persuasive effect and will not strike down the law. Now this could be viewed by many perhaps as a rather weak Bill of Rights model, but it does spare the senior judiciary some, if not all, of the personal political scrutiny at play elsewhere in the world and require Parliament to take ultimate responsibility for having the final word in tense human rights debates. The third relationship is between the judiciary and executive and managed by way of Section 6 of the Human Rights Act, which in keeping with traditional judicial review principle does allow strike down of executive action, including secondary legislation, when it violates convention rights, save, of course, again, when such incompatible action was required by primary legislation. This is, of course, the provision that has provided consistent irritation to so many successive Home Secretaries whose lazy retort often refers to parliamentary sovereignty, as if the executive and parliament were one and the same, or as if the Human Rights Act, like other primary legislation to be interpreted by the courts, were not in itself the product of parliament. So importantly, the fourth, final and often forgotten vital conversation in the Human Rights Act is between Parliament and the Government of the day. Section 19 requires a minister in charge of a bill to make a statement as to his or her belief in the compatibility or otherwise of the draft legislation <coughs> with convention rights so as to trigger a more informed and rigorous parliamentary debate over the wisdom of its passage. Some vocal critics of the Human Rights Act, often those who plead their libertarian credentials, as if to be a libertarian is synonymous with respect for human rights, impugn the document by pointing to every authoritarian act of Parliament that ever began with a minister's stated belief 
incompatibility under Section 19. They should be reminded that such a document is a statement of belief, not a certificate of truth or final judgment. Its purpose is to start a debate between the elected limbs of the Constitution, not to end it. The need for such analysis and justification, particularly when combined with the attentions of the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Human Rights and Home Affairs Select Committee and so on, can add substantially, I think, to the quality of parliamentary scrutiny and empowerment of the most contentious legislation impacting on convention rights. Nonetheless, this so-called libertarian griping cannot be completely separated from the rather mixed record on fundamental rights and freedoms of its political parents. The new Labour years brought other important legislation in the equality sphere. Race equality and disability amendment legislation culminating in the Equality Act. The infamous and discriminatory Section 28 was repealed, the age of consent equalised, and civil partnerships for same-sex couples introduced. In other respects, however, human rights values were often dishonoured in thought and word and deed. It would, of course, be airbrushing history in in rather surreal primary colours to suggest that the tensions all began with 9-11. Many in the Labour movement had seen civil liberties as the preoccupation of the metropolitan liberal elite. I won't tell you which Home Secretary said that to me. (laughs) And you can guess. And long believed in a necessary choice of equality over liberty. And sure enough, unfettered freedom for the wolf gives little comfort to the lamb. However, As continued freedom struggles around the world best demonstrate, oppression rarely works with an even hand. Those who favour either liberty or equality over the other should consider how this false dilemma squares with the right not to be a slave. Further, New Labour's authoritarian instincts were visible early on, not least in opposition, when Messrs Blair and Howard began an arms race that led Britain perhaps to overfull prisons at home and even secret prisons abroad. Nonetheless, it's a tragic twist of fate that the Twin Towers atrocity occurred just 11 months after the Infant Human Rights Act had been brought into force in October 2000. This two-year preparation period during which judges and lawyers were trained but the public not educated or even informed about convention rights seemed to suggest cooling feet on the part of the former government. This delayed and almost private implementation conspired with the war on terror and attacks on legal aid for all but the poorest and most desperate to distort the emerging public human rights narrative as mediated by the popular press. You seem to have to be super rich, protecting your privacy, or suspect and seeking to avoid deportation or prison to gain access to justice and actively invoke human rights protection. In truth, the Act did as much as any Bill of Rights, I think, to temper some of the worst excesses of the war on terror. Notwithstanding the stubborn resilience of the executive instinct for so-called secret justice, the Human Rights Act dialogue between our highest court and Parliament ended internment in Belmarsh over seven years ago. By contrast, Guantanamo still stands as an icon of injustice, even, 
and perhaps especially in the run-up to President Obama's re-election campaign. The Strasbourg Court, too, acted as a crucial check on the last government's claims that the innocent had nothing to hide, from mass DNA retention and overbroad stop-and-search powers unhindered, even by the generous test of reasonable suspicion. It seemed that a continental court of judges, including those from younger democracies, had something real to say about the lives of others in the United Kingdom and the dangers of complacency about personal privacy. And while these positions were often championed by various media outlets, some of them heard a rather different drummer when big business and not big brother sat behind the camera. The convention also served to facilitate important debates and protections. It should be remembered that Strasbourg litigation preceded and nudged almost every important development in domestic gay equality legislation. Similarly, whilst criminal defendants have rightly long held precious protections in domestic common law, the rights of victims of crime, deaths in custody or by state negligence and their bereaved families gained far more from the positive obligations on state agents under the Convention and Human Rights Act. Nonetheless, and despite having created and extended such important human rights architecture, the last government set out on a legislative path that tested every part of its design almost to destruction. After internment came control orders, then proposals for 90 and 42 day pre-charge detention. Then a poignant fusion of wars on terror, literal and foreign, and metaphysical and domestic, people were convicted for reading aloud the names of dead British soldiers and Iraqi civilians at Cenotaph. We gained the dubious honour of being CCTV capital of the world and its unregulated use left one Muslim community in Birmingham feeling betrayed and alienated when a counter-terror ring of steel was erected around their homes without their knowledge. The victims of stop and search without suspicion and DNA retention without conviction were disproportionately young, black and male, equality laws notwithstanding. Outflanking conservatives on the authoritarian right became a new orthodoxy that many in the Labour Party remain reluctant to question. Much actual and political capital was wasted, in my view, on the grand folly of identity cards, opposition to which would eventually make it just that little bit easier for liberals and conservatives, europhiles and eurosceptics, libertarians and passionate believers in equality protection to coalesce. The uh, present coalition parties were of course flung together in 2010 by a combination of electoral gravity, parliamentary arithmetic and precarious financial markets. But the noble glue on hand was the language, not of human rights, but of civil liberties. What else could unite such a broad range of views in almost every other aspect of domestic and international politics? Liberal Democrats and Conservatives had walked through the lobbies together before. And what's more, they'd stayed up night after night doing so, and with a song in their hearts. Just as martial artists trust that in a crisis they'll be able to repeat moves they've rehearsed again and again in the past, common cause around past civil liberty struggles must have made mutual trust in the nervous early days of coalition easier. 
just as identity cards policy remains one of the few from which the new generation of Labour leadership explicitly resiles, the repeal of that legislation, by now even less popular in times of recession, was the perfect iconic choice for the first act of the coalition parliament. And with little encouragement, to say the least, from Her Majesty's new opposition, there were other signs of early promise from the coalition on these issues. A review of anti-terror legislation brought 28-day pre-charge detention down to 14 days. Though a cynic would point out the rebranding of the odious control order regime as terrorism prevention and investigation measures, TPIMS. Stop and search powers and DNA retention would be more tightly regulated in line with Strasbourg judgments against the UK. And there was even talk, if sadly no early action, on putting just a little discretion back into the extradition system. However, the most obvious justice and home affairs fault line in the coalition relates to human rights at home, if not abroad. Whilst many commentators rather assumed that retention of the Human Rights Act would be a non-negotiable of this coalition, the relevant agreement fudged the issue by establishing a commission to explore a United Kingdom Bill of Rights that might build upon the European Convention. Now, such an exploration might seem harmless enough until you remember that it is the mechanisms of the Human Rights Act, not the Convention alone, that make its precious freedoms directly enforceable here in the United Kingdom without a 10-year trudge to the court in Strasbourg. Combine this with hyperbolic statements from cabinet ministers about cats, criminals, feeling physically sick at the decisions of unelected judges, further add the silence and occasional goading of the Labour opposition, and it seems to me there are reasons to be concerned for our human rights future. But rather than merely bemoan what I contend to be misplaced current criticisms of the Human Rights Act, let me attempt to address them in some of their contradictory glory. Firstly, the Human Rights Act, like the convention it contains, is just too European. Like the Euro, or Silvio Berlusconi, or a Bratwurst. Now, some of the Conservatives who take this position rather resent Churchill's well-evidenced belief in both universal human rights and promotion of the European Convention after World War II. Perhaps citing a great British politician who was at times a Liberal and a Conservative is just too galling for some of those less comfortable with the coalition. However, I might ask them to consider the mixed messages that anti-convention noises send, not just to younger and more fragile democracies within the Council of Europe, but to potential and embryonic ones around the world. Nonetheless, if Churchill's legacy isn't British enough, and harmony in domestic and international rhetoric too consistent, the following piece of pragmatism ought to have some force. To be clear, the immediate direct effect of repealing or radically diluting the Human Rights Act tomorrow would be to convert the Strasbourg Court back in to this country's first instance Court of Human Rights with no opportunity for adjudication at home or meaningful British contribution to international human rights jurisprudence. 
That's what it would do. Rather a Eurosceptic own goal, perhaps. It would perhaps be remiss at this point to leave um, this criticism without touching on the UK's current chairmanship of the Council of Europe and discussions over reform of the Strasbourg system. Now, the current debate is as much about spin as substance, and of course all friends of rights and freedoms lament the court's backlog and sometime political appointments. Aspects of the government's draft declaration encouraging higher quality judicial appointments and better domestic governmental implementation of human rights are therefore to be welcomed. But attempts to alter the court's admissibility criteria are more troubling, it seems to me. It's important to remember the huge percentage of cases that go to the court from less entrenched and stable democracies, like Russia. The backlog is largely attributable to some of those member states and their repeated failure to maintain human rights standards. Governments should, I think, be wary of doing real or symbolic damage to protections across the Council of Europe just for the swift applause that may come with easier deportation or the automatic deprivation of every short-term prisoner's vote. If the first beef is with Strasbourg, then, the second applies equally to the Strand and the Supreme Court. It's the chorus of disapproval at, quote, unelected, end quote, judges adjudicating on human rights issues at all. My response is as follows. Under the Human Rights Act, Parliament has the final word, so don't badmouth the referees when you lack the courage of your convictions and grudgingly implement decisions with which you disagree rather than introducing or maintaining incompatible legislation that you wholeheartedly defend. Under the Convention, the United Kingdom enjoys a considerable margin of appreciation and its application in its application of qualified rights and further latitude in choosing how to implement findings of breach. In the case of prisoner voting, just for example, that seems to pop into my head, prisoner voting, some of us might actually prefer all prisoners to vote. But there is an extremely wide range of choices open to Parliament other than the present automatic and blanket ban. To think of another example, I don't know, the case of Abu Qatada, another course celeb that seems to toxify our debate and I seem to have been banging on about for about a decade. Um, I would have preferred this suspect to have been charged and tried with a criminal offence many years ago. However, the court having upheld diplomatic assurances in principle, the Home Secretary is pursuing further and better assurances from the Kingdom of Jordan. Let's hope those negotiations in the desert go rather better for everyone than previous ones. In the end, however, and despite the present chilling proposals for yet more one-sided secret courts in the Justice and Security Green Paper, you just cannot accept the jurisdiction of any court, domestic or international, with a promise of always winning there. Why should any ordinary person in Britain accept a magistrate's ASBO if her government will not respect the highest courts in the land and beyond? The third beef is with rights for unworthy people. 
Now, this often comes from a belief in a simple contract where rights are earned and subject to deprivation on poor performance of obligations or bad behaviour. It fails to see the ease with which any of us, however innocent, may at times seem suspicious through suspicious eyes. It further fails to recognise the way in which the same person may be a victim as well as a perpetrator, and the human and social cost in throwing so many people away. Finally, it forgets the endless legal obligations, many of them exacted under pain of criminal sanction, to which we are all bound. It forgets that most of our human rights are capable of limitation in order to protect others, but there must remain some minimum standards for our treatment and protection nonetheless. The next beef is with so-called rights inflation, or the trivialisation of rights and freedoms. Prisoner voting is once more given as an example for this phenomenon and described by some human rights critics as a matter of social policy rather than civil liberties. Once more, I find this a rather disingenuous method of expressing simple disagreement with a particular judicial application of human rights principle. You might perhaps argue that the court gave insufficient regard to some possible rational purpose to the disenfranchisement of offenders in custody. But it seems a contortion too far to suggest that voting could be regarded as a trivial social matter rather than a fundamental civil and political right central to democracy. So many other examples of so-called rights inflation, again, often in the context of prisoners, relate to claims asserted but never upheld in the courts. The final beef is perhaps the most real and dangerous one. Not primarily based on myth or misunderstanding, it marks the greatest fault line in so many coalitions across politics. Do you believe in the rights of freeborn Englishmen the privileges that come with the citizenship of any country or in the universal human rights of all human beings. Every newborn baby and newly arrived asylum seeker anywhere in the world. It's this fault line which causes so many controversies to centre on deportation. The Convention System and Human Rights Act of course recognises nation states. Its convention states, after all, who created them and are ultimately responsible for them. Unauthorised entry to a country is an explicit ground for lawful detention and the economic well-being of the country and national security are explicit grounds for limiting family life, though not protection from torture. But that generation who had witnessed the Holocaust gleaned the importance of building rights on humanity rather than citizenship, or any other privileged status of which people might be stripped. And if we needed the lesson in our own times, we find it in the worst mistakes of recent years. When great democracies abandoned their values and freedoms name during the war on terror, the harshest treatment, whether by internment or kidnap and even torture, was reserved for foreign nationals, even nationals of allied states. Some would say, and have said, so what? In times of crisis, it must be nationals first. 
It is for them, rather than all people in a territory, let alone people beyond it, that governments must be responsible. Whilst instinctively attractive to many, this argument forgets the shrinking and interconnected nature of our world. Not just of actual travel, migration and multiple ties that bind, but of virtual movement and communities by the internet. Popular concern about instant extradition is a case in point. We're all foreigners in most parts of the world. So it might be in our better interests to seek to be treated as human beings everywhere. By contrast, the attempted differentiation between British rights, American rights and so on marks the all-too-well-trodden road to Guantanamo Bay. Now, of course, it would be possible to draft a United Kingdom Bill of Rights that added to, rather than subtracted from, the rights protected by way of the Convention and the Human Rights Act. But that would hardly live up to the expectations of most of those currently calling for reform. It would be equally possible to add to the Human Rights Act by entrenching it as a first step to a written constitution, requiring supermajorities of parliament or public consultation or referenda before any future amendment or repeal. Such innovations also seem quite removed from realistic political promises from any current quarter. It would even be possible to add to judicial power, perhaps with good cause if independent peers are to lose their role in legislative scrutiny. But do we hear a single senior politician calling for strike-down powers for unconstitutional legislation under a future UK Bill of Rights? Hardly. Instead, judge-bashing, human-rights-bashing appetites are offered a world where their own liberties will always be protected, but never those of the undeserving. Politicians, rather than interfering unelected judges, will always know the difference, and the sun will always shine. The best possible offering to those of us bemused and concerned by all of this is a Bill of Rights that faithfully cuts and pastes the Human Rights Act, but without offending references to the European bit of the Convention, and possibly wraps it in the Union Jack for more patriotic effect, unless you live in one of the parts of these islands where the flag provokes a somewhat uncertain reaction. Once more, such a drafting exercise is perfectly possible. But does anyone really think that this Botox Bill of Rights is going to fool the critics. Instead, it would feed the idea that fundamental rights are creatures of fad and fashion to be thrown out or made over with each passing government, a kind of permanent constitutional revolution rather than a statement of basic law and values for all Democrats and generations to unite around. Further, inevitably disappointed expectations the next time a terror suspect can't be sent abroad to torture might not exactly reignite faith or engagement in democratic politics. So you'll see from my concerns about the government's Bill of Rights Commission that I see a group of eminent lawyers who've been placed in the Big Brother house when the real beef with the Human Rights Act cannot be negotiated or drafted away even by eminent lawyers. It will rest in the end, dare I say it, on politics, 
and political leadership. Yet out of adversity, opportunity may come. And perhaps the opportunity, not for eminent lawyers, but for all of us across the democratic spectrum, finally to debate and attempt to resolve some of the questions and contradictions with which I began. Why human rights at all? Why abroad, if not at home? What does it mean? What does it really mean to believe in dignity, equality and fairness in difficult times when we're all in it together, but some of us seemingly so much deeper in it than others? Might this not finally be a moment to rediscover, or perhaps really discover for the first time, a framework of liberty and security, respect and protection, individual, community and democratic society as a lens for policy analysis and debate? Might it not be time to realise that internationalism need not just be for government and multinational corporate action, but for ethical values, legal protection, and people's struggles and aspirations too. I say all of this knowing how lucky I am to be a human rights campaigner in an old, unbroken democracy where the biggest danger is perhaps complacency and where I've worked for many years without personal risk or sacrifice. So don't treasure your rights and freedoms on my account. Listen instead to someone far younger, braver, and wiser. Since we started our uprising against dictatorship in Egypt, many British officials visited Cairo and asked how they could help our struggle. The most important thing that the British can do to support human rights in Egypt is to support human rights in the United Kingdom. We've all heard of your government's attempt to repeal the UK Human Rights Act, diluting current human rights protections or restricting fundamental rights to citizens rather than humans would set us all back. It's significantly more difficult for us to fight for universal human rights in our country if your country publicly walks away from the same universal rights. That's my friend and colleague Hossam Bagat, the director of the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights and a veteran of the Tahir Square uprising of last year. Thanks very much. Thank you, Shami. That was terrific, stimulating, thought-provoking. And, you know, when you refer to uh, the members of the coalition walking through the lobbies with a song in their heart. I couldn't help wondering if it was that song I was quoting from earlier, Shami Chakrabarti by the Dastards. Well, I rather walked into that one. <laughs> now, I, uh, I told you earlier that I tried to make a plan to abuse my position as chair by calling myself a respondent as well on some of the promotional literature and give myself a chance to get the first couple of questions in first but unfortunately Shami has foxed me we've only got half an hour left and I promised you that you'd have half an hour for Q&A so I won't even attempt to do what I was going to do and properly sum up Shami's lecture except for to say this I did look up in the dictionary the Oxford dictionary what the word swindle meant before this lecture and it says to obtain by fraud or deceit 
strong words, but I think the point you are making in the title you chose, and it was very much your title, is that many of the arguments against the Human Rights Act and for a British or UK Bill of Rights, i.e. that the Human Rights Act undermines democracy or that it gives too many rights to unpopular minorities, as Shami says, these are in fact well-worn arguments for not supporting a Bill of Rights at all. Therefore, as most of the arguments in favour of Human Rights Act repeal would suggest a weaker and less universal instrument, this project for a British Bill of Rights is a swindle in that it aims to achieve its ends through deceit, is what I think you're saying. So, with that in your yes. minds... <laughs> and that didn't take 40 minutes, did it? Oh, <laughs> uh, Yes. In my day, two lifetimes ago, we learned to do this, you see, at the LSE. But anyway, um, I'll now take questions in groups three or four. I'm going to take them first of all down here, then upstairs, because you lot down here don't realise as many people up in the balcony as there is down below. And I'm just going to ask the first four people I see, just one piece of advice when you ask a question. Try to make it shorter than the predicted answer. And if I think you're not doing that, I'm going to cut you off halfway. So, I saw that lady, I saw that lady, I saw that guy. Anyone else? A fourth one? Quick, this is your only chance. And someone at the back. Right, thank you. Please say who you are and where you, what your affiliation is. And please wait for the microphone before you, uh, before you speak. Sorry, we didn't catch that. On the Monica Beba, I'm a member of the Media Society. I used to be in politics hands-on. Uh, as well as uh, I've worked in all kinds of places. Anyway, um, I've met lots of people. Um, are you aware? Are you aware of mind control experiments, which is, um, I suppose, the repeal of the Human Rights Bill, is uh, in order to protect the, those who are conducting the mind control experiments, with quite a few victims. Okay. Thank you. Second one was this lady, please. Be ready. Do we have more than one microphone? Can we come to the third one? Can you put up your hand, the third? Yeah, so that you're ready to take the question. And then the fourth one's at the back. It's when this one's finished. Yeah, thank you. Can you say who you are? Yes. Where you? Angela Ellis-Jones. I stood as UK Independence Party candidate in Kensington and Chelsea in 1997. Um, you present human rights as being something objective, impartial, something that any reasonable person can agree with and should agree with. I would put it to you that human rights is actually a very left-wing ideology. All the most prominent um, advocates of human rights, both of you, Helena Kennedy, um, whoever you think of who is prominent in the human rights movement is left-wing. You name me a prominent right-wing human rights advocate. And so your values of equality and internationalism are left-wing values. And your attitude of um, putting undeserving people on an equality with the people they have hurt, that again is a left-wing value. Right-wingers think that desert ought to be relevant. All the traditions of English law, you know, no one can come to equity, or someone must come to equity with clean hands. No one shall profit from his own wrong. The human rights ideology totally cuts against all that. 
Thanks very much for that interesting question. Third, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. Free expression is a very fundamental human rights principle, and I was very glad to have that question. Thank you. Uh, the third speaker, thank you, you've got the microphone. Um, Shami, just want to ask. Sorry, you need to say who you oh, are. Si uh, Simon Johnson, uh, General Human. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't believe in those here. I uh, just want to ask about the Royal Decree. Um, I don't really understand how the Royal Decree squares with human rights, how uh, the Queen can basically wave a wand or whatever and overturn a court uh, ruling. And at the back, please. Hi, my name is Francesca as well, Francesca Fry. All the best people. <laughs> um, I work in international aid and progressive um, politics. And I was just wondering if you could um, let us, you said it's a, an opportunity for us at the moment also, but mostly around debate. And I was wondering if you could um, let us know your thoughts about what else we can do in terms of activism. That's for my varied questions. Um, the first one was Monica. I didn't quite catch, did you, what uh, Monica uh, was uh, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I know about the particular um, issue. Well, um, no, I, don't. I think your question was, do you know about a particular abuse, and, and, and I don't. But, but, but I, I would say that I think that, um, that the protections in the Act have a, have a wide application, which takes me to, to, to miss... To, okay. So to turn to Miss Ellis-Jones, because I agree with Francesca, this is a really important question. Um, I don't agree that human rights are, are, are left-wing are left principles. And you asked me very correctly and challengingly to name um, a right-wing or a centre-right or a non-left-wing exponent of, of human rights. And, and I'll start with Winston Churchill. And if that's too far back, I'll continue with Peter O'Born. Um, and, and I don't, um, and, and, and rather, and you know, we can we can cite you know other 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 names. I think those are pretty good ones for for, for suggesting that these are not left wing values. But in terms of the content, you know, we're talking about property rights as well. As, you know, this is why some people traditionally on the left of politics had real concerns about the yes, rule of so law. Sorry, we have to let Shami answer now. So I'm just going to I was just going to say that. Um, that there have been, as I try to suggest, perhaps not ably enough, but I try to suggest in the talk that there have been suspicions, not just about human rights, universal human rights, post the post-war settlement, but even about the rule of law, um, often from the left of politics. You know, people were concerned when I was a kid on the left that judges were toughs in wigs and you couldn't trust them because they would protect people's property rights and you wouldn't be able to have mass nationalisation of property because of this modicum of respect for, for the individual. I happen to believe, um, you can disagree with me, but I happen to believe that this framework of values, if you actually look at it, if you actually look at the convention rights, you will see uh, a, a, a set of values that all Democrats can, in my view, agree upon. That doesn't mean we're going to agree about particular cases or particular applications of the rights, but I think it helps to have at least a framework of values around which one can debate. I know you want to come back, but that's what the reception for is. With a glass of wine in your hand, we can carry on the debate upstairs. The fourth question, Shami. The fourth um, on activism. On activism. Oh, there was a royal what, prerogative. What, what? Just oh, sorry, you're that, quite right. Sorry. Was, um, Thank you. Better chair than me. Um, royal prerogative when, was number three. Did you mean the royal prerogative? Because otherwise, yeah. we might be getting into technical yeah, things I that, about. I, I assume that's what um, you meant. 
I may be wrong. I, I, I may be wrong too, and there are other uh, cleverer lawyers and judges and all sorts of people in this audience. So I don't want to make a complete fool of myself, just a partial fool of myself. Um, I, um, as far as I understand it, um, the royal per- exercises of the royal prerogative um, are not immune from um, from human rights. Um, scrutiny, either domestically or in Strasbourg. If I'm wrong about that and there's some precedent that I've misunderstood, then that ought to be something that that, that we're concerned about. But my understanding is that executive acts, whether under statutory discretion or under the royal prerogative, um, would be subject to challenge um, where where, where they violate uh, fundamental um, rights and freedoms. And on the point about um, on the point about activism, I, I could take this moment to have a plug for Liberty, which is a membership organisation, and we're um, very grateful for. We don't want Facebook fans and friends and followers, and well, we do. I'm sure we do. My colleagues will tell me we do want all of these things. Um, you know, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a Twitter or something. Yes. Um, but, and that's but, fine. That's a hashtag. Well done, well done, Professor. Um, but but we do we do want members, and you know there's always there's constant debate about the best way to demonstrate and and what modern modern activism is. But but we have found that um, that, that we can use a combination of traditional and more and more internet-based means to bring people together for um, to, to great effect. You know. Uh, Various of the policies that I mentioned, in particular the proposal on a on a British Bill of Rights with common sense, as the Prime Minister first described it, um, but also the current plans in the in the Secret Justice Green Paper, really quite horrific proposals to give the executive a blank check to shut down, you know, to lock the courtroom and exclude not just the journalists and the public, but um, but the but the claimant and their lawyers whenever the public interest is invoked by a minister. You know, these we're told that these proposals are green, very green. There is an opportunity to to engage, to respond to these consultations, and 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 also to to do so in a, a sort of fairly concerted and coordinated way. So do please, if you're at all sympathetic, to you know, even a fraction of what I've said today, do do um, look for Liberty um, via your favourite search engine. Um, skip the Smart Piccadilly department store so that you're not <laughs> diverted. You know, the fiscal stimulus can come can come via other means, and you will find Liberty Human Rights, the National Council for Civil Liberties. And do think about joining us; you'd be very welcome. Right. Thank you very much, Shami. Now I'm looking for hands in the upper tier. I've seen one there. If you want one, no women in the upper tier want to ask a single question before I choose four blokes. <laughs> no, it's sort of segregation, like in a sort of religious establishment. <laughs> well, there's, there's. I'm only going to be able to choose one of you in the middle. I'll, I'll, I'll choose you in the middle. Uh, one there, and there was someone right at the back. Ah, oh, there's now a woman put her hand up, and I will choose her fourth. So sorry, I have to choose who I see first. So you, you're second. So where was number one? There, lovely. Oh, hello, my name is Ian Anderson, and I have a query reflecting on Monica's earlier question. I think you're right. I think the uh, Human Rights uh, Commissioner has condemned the use of less lethal weapons 
and one aspect of it that he's particularly condemned is lack of disclosure about their use. It's because of the lack of disclosure that very little is being done about it. Because a lack of awareness causes a lack of political will to do anything about it. Hmm? So thank you. Okay, that's good. The second one, I think, who's got the microphone. Yeah, that, you were number two, actually. Yes. Yeah, you, you, that you, yes. Me. No, no, the gentleman in front of you. Sorry, but it, I saw him first. Um, it's when you don't also. Name. Let's hear your name now, please. Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Hussein Arslan. I'm Sorry? My name is Hussein Arslan. Hussein, I'm yep. student at LSE, studying human rights. Great. Um, That's what we yeah. like. That one of your students, uh, <clears throat> Please um, carry on. Yeah. I'm just wondering whether there is a drafted uh, human rights bill Bill of Rights to mm. compare with the Human Rights Act 1998 and also uh, would there be any difference if the UK, United Kingdom Parliament repealed the Human Rights Could Act? Could you speak up a little because even I'm struggling. Yeah, just wondering whether there would be any difference for the United Kingdom authorities to repeal the Human Rights Act because <clears throat> the United Kingdom is already a member of the convention. What would make a difference for the United Kingdom? in the European era. You can tell that he's a student of human rights at the LSE with such a brilliant question. Thank you. <laughs> and now, there, gentlemen, and then the lady behind. Yes, uh, my name is Vijay Srao. Um, you mentioned universal human rights. Which countries address hu uh, human rights better than the UK, and how do they do it, and how can the UK learn from it? Because if they can't, they don't have. If the UK doesn't have anything original or innovative, uh, why can't they just copy some other country? <laughs> are you are you also a student here, or uh, I'm a farmer. You're a farmer. <laughs> Whole world is here tonight. Wonderful. And finally, hi, um, I'm Simone Abel from Rene Kassan, a human rights organisation. Please check us out. Uh, my question is, um, I was wondering if you could maybe just say a little bit about the implications potentially, um, you know, if the Human Rights Act is repealed, what that would do, maybe creating a two-tier system of rights. And um, I think that that's, that's a particular instance where the illogicality of this really comes up. So I was hoping you could maybe touch on that. So Thank you've you. got three questions there, Shami, that do directly address your lecture on the repeal of the Human Rights Act and the British Bill of Rights. So the learned LSE human rights student um, you know, made the very pertinent point about what on earth is going on. A, is there an alternative draft Bill of Rights, um, given that this has been you know, um, a political party's policy for some years now, and that that party is in, in the coalition government? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just compare... Um, the two instruments. We could look at the Human Rights Act, we could look at this new draft Bill of Rights, and then we could just compare the two, and we could see is this going to be stronger or is it going to be weaker? Is it going to uh, allow the um, domestic courts to adjudicate or not? Is it going to have all the various things that are sometimes promised? We could have social and economic rights, we could have children's rights, you know, all the things that we would that many people might love to see and the lady from UKIP might not want to see. The problem is there is the problem is that there is no draft bill of rights. So there's this kind of phony war going on where people can well, where everything can be promised to all people. That's the, where the element of swindle. I, don't, I didn't 
use that word lightly. I do think it's a swindle, not just to human rights folk like me, but to human rights sceptics who are being told, don't worry, we'll be able to deport people to places of torture and not have interference from judges and not have interference from foreign judges if we have this British Bill of Rights. And then and then others are told, don't worry, we'll still be in the convention and the Bill of Rights will be just better, faster, leaner. You know, um, you can't have it all. Can I, you're can making I promises. you on this, Shami? And that of course, getting of one course, of my questions. Yeah. Sneak them in by the back. It's often said that, okay, you know, hear your point, but there are, is such a thing as traditional <coughs> British liberties. There are ancient common law freedoms. Wouldn't it be better to rename this Bill of Rights that we now have called the Human Rights Act, British or UK Bill of Rights, put in ancient freedoms like right to trial, joy, and habeas corpus, and then it would become popular okay. that way? Okay. Well, if it's just about rebranding and not... A, there's two points there. One is a kind of re patriotic branding point, and the other is we could make more explicit um, and enumerate some ancient liberties like jury trial. On the rebranding point, I've said my piece. Botox isn't going to cut it for the, for the reason that you still won't be sending people to places of torture and so on and so forth. You might have this beautiful document that's now wrapped in the Union Jack, but what are, you, what are people going to say? Are they, uh, do, do you think human rights critics are so stupid that they won't have the same concerns that they had before with this rebranded document? So, so you mean the human rights critics will be crying swindle rather than the human rights activists? I think I think potentially. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you, you just can't have your cake and eat it. On mm. doit décider si on veut du lard ou du cochon. That's French for you can't have your cake and eat it. I learn something new every day. Um, that's my only line of French, and there are moments in life when you have to just kind of get it out. Um, <laughs> just for the. Apologies, madam, but it was a bit of a lot. Um, that's the trouble with these human rights. You see, they speak French as well, you know. It's no, no, but, um, so it, it's, it's, it's a swindle on everybody to suggest that we can have it all, that we can have judicial protection of my rights without your rights, or that you can scrap the Human Rights Act, stay in the convention system, and actually... Um, that that is a patriotic thing to do because, as I've said, that would mean that it would be the Strasbourg court that would be the first instance court for, for all of these. So we're in a phony war situation where politicians are getting away with blue murder. Because, and for example, there's a judgment they don't like. They say, I feel physically sick. Unelected judges are making us give various people rights. And it's, it's often not true. It's certainly not true in the context of domestic judgments because, as we've said, under the, under the Human Rights Act, Parliament has the final word. They don't say, well, actually, thank you, but no thank you, Court of Appeal, Supreme Court. We disagree with the judgment, and under the Human Rights Act, we're entitled so to do. They don't say that. They act, and they speak as if it's a US-style Bill of Rights with strike-down powers, but then they don't give it US-style respect. It becomes a sort of toxic, um, partisan issue. So the rebranding thing... I don't think it's going to work. And the second point was, but what if um, the, um, we would actually do something more substantive and we would add jury trial, for example? Now, Which I think addresses Vijay's point, doesn't it, Vijay? Because you were saying, haven't look, you came up something to I'm add? A I'm a passionate believer in the right to jury trial. 
not because I don't think you can get fair adjudication from judges, but I think there is something special about legitimacy and community in people taking this very important civic responsibility, and I think it's good that you don't always see one class presiding over the rights and freedoms of another. I'm a great fan of jury trial. But guess what? Jury trial has been, to some extent, rode back in recent years, and I don't see the current government sort of clamouring to alter that. And, uh, and what's more, look at the Secret Justice Green Paper. You know, there's some ancient, there's a pretty ancient principle uh, engaged by that, that you should have equality before the law, that no one is above the law, even the executive is not above the law, there should be, that both parties in civil litigation should be on an even footing. That's going to be completely exploded by this green paper. And so that I'm being told now that we're going to have ancient liberties that are put in a, in a poetic Bill of Rights document whilst they're not being protected and they're being rowed back by substantive legislation. So I just don't... I just, yes, yes, it's all theoretical, theoretically possible, but I don't see any evidence of a political will to do it. This Bill of Rights exercise is not, as I see it, a Bill of Rights exercise. It's about saying we want to row back and then just be honest with people and then we can have the basic debate why human rights at all, why it's important to protect people from torture or to respect their privacy rather than, um, than the smoke and mirrors. I and did, was there another country that does better? I, I'm, I'm a fan of the Human Rights Act. I'm not, I'm not saying it's inadequate. And, and what's more, I, I, I do think that there, is, there are even greater possibilities, as I tried to hint at, for, um, for people in Britain and judges in Britain to, um, to take into account by way of the Human Rights Act, not just the jurisprudence of the Continental Court of Human Rights, but common law, common law jurisdictions. Because the, because the non-negotiables that, we, that we, we talked about, no torture, free speech, fair trials, are not just um, prevalent in, in, in Europe. These are pretty much found, you're the expert Francesca, in all post-war and pretty much all post-war democratic bills of rights and then there was Simone's question which was if we, I think you were saying is if, if the Human Rights Act was repealed and you had a new Bill of Rights and you also had the European Convention on Human Rights would that be confusing? Well, again, Maybe I, that's why I just some think, people are I just think that's a nonsense. Well, the people who say withdraw from the European Convention are at least more honest, aren't they? Um, they, they are more, that's a more mm -hmm. honest debate. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there's another. There was another issue. There's another issue which I didn't touch on because it's too complicated and it's, you know, I'm not clever enough and learned enough to, to, to understand in in any depth the various devolution settlements. But they have all been um, tied in to to the, to the Human Rights Act, and there are responsibilities on the various legislatures of, it, under that settlement to, um, um, to to comply with the Human Rights Act, but. Leaving the legal point about devolution aside, what about the cultural, um, social, um, United Kingdom side of it? This idea of Britishness and a Union Jack Bill of Rights and a more patriotic Bill of Rights, how, does that re how do people feel about that in different parts of the kingdom? One of the many advantages, it seems to me, of human rights 
rather than citizens' rights, is that everybody is human and everybody ought to feel human. Some people feel more Scottish than British. Some people, etc., etc., feel more loyalty to a religious community or an international community, but everybody is human. And these are human rights that I, that, that I think people can unite around. I think we've got time just for two quick more questions. One at the top over there, and one, come on, be prepared, because the first person whose hand I see, yeah, uh, down here as well. Who, who can I see first? I've opened my eyes. I close them, I've opened them. <laughs> there, at the back. Someone give them the... These will be the last two questions, and they really have got to be just questions and not comments in order to give Shami a chance to respond, please. Yes. Um, in a world in which... Sorry, who are you? Dave Shepherd. Uh, trade unionist. In a world in which only a third of the states enfranchise women, should this affect our regard for those states' uh, regulations? And the other thing is, why does the Speaker imagine trade unionists in the 1970s under a Labour government uh, re uh, rejected the idea of two prescriptive uh, framework for wage ne negotiations? Um, uh, I, I, rec I recollect being cross-examined by uh, Professor Clug on this matter once. Anyway, Very luckily, Francesca Clug doesn't have to answer that question. What a and and the question below. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm Devinder Sandhu. I was thinking about the tension between Parliament and the judiciary. And is it that the Parliament makes the laws, and these are generic, but the key bit is the interpretation, the judgment that is given by the independent judiciary. So there may be some thoughts about what is the law meant to do, and the judgment that comes from an independent judiciary may actually look at different aspects, uh, and you have to value that that judgment is given independently. But it might go against what Parliament may have intended. And I wonder whether that's where the tension comes. You've hit the nail on the head, so I'm hoping you're going to say you're from the LSE. Uh, I'm not. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a surgeon. I'm not a, 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 a trained doctor. <laughs> surgeon, not a cosmetic yeah. surgeon, because that's what some people Botox. want for the human Botox. Yeah. Botox. Um, right, Shami, you've got specialists. So the that. tension between Parliament and the judiciary, of of course, but of course the the way that the Human Rights Act attempts to square that circle and balance that tension, I think, as I've said, is ingenious. In that, firstly. Um, judges are empowered, like we're all empowered and required to interpret legislation in a way that's compatible with human rights because Parliament said so when it passed the Human Rights Act. But if judges are going too far or interpreting this legislation in a way that Parliament is uncomfortable with, the Human Rights Act gives them the final word in that parliamentarians can legislate again and be crystal clear and this, you know, by the way, this has happened. I mean, during, during the war on terror, there, was, there were a number of statutes passed that said, Not with, there shall be no judicial review at all whatsoever of this decision. Um, you know, really, really express language saying to the judges, back off, we've, we've got the final word. And in this settlement, um, 
you know that. So I think it's really ironic that that, that people who don't like too much judicial intervention or who, who remain suspicious now, many of them to the right of politics rather than the left of politics, shouldn't welcome the current arrangement rather than raising expectations of um, uh, of bills of rights as we see elsewhere in the world. Where you know, in the United States, the judges get to strike down legislation, not just interpret it, but strike it down and say it's unconstitutional, and then whole pressure groups far richer and, um, and larger than mine, exist for the sole purpose of trying to pack the Supreme Court. And judges are asked about every essay they wrote when they were a law student, and we have real... That's the politics of the judiciary, goodness me. Which takes me to the trade union um, colleague who asked a question that I'm not qualified to answer about trade disputes in the 1970s. Now I'll let you off answering that question. I'll let me off answering the question okay. addressed to me as well. So it's except, except a bit... Um, so I don't know about the trade union... Um, trade disputes but I do but you do remind me of the understandable and I do think it was understandable nervousness in parts of the trade union movements movement and parts of the left of politics in the 70s and the 80s about whether judges could be relied upon or trusted to apply law with an even hand and to care about refugees trade unionists homeless people I mean this was the kind of John Griffith um, point, and he backed it up with with empirical analysis and analysis of where these judges were being educated and and, and looking at their ju- judgments. And I understand where that beef came from, but I do think that things have ha, have moved on. And as I said, in the 90s and subsequently, we've got judges, regardless of their background, sticking up for destitute uh, asylum seekers in the, face, in the face of authoritarian home secretaries devoid of compassion from both sides of the, uh, of, of the political equation. So I do think that we've moved on in terms of the, the politics of the judiciary, if you put it that way. And I think that, um, that greater diversity and sort of public engagement in in, in, in all of this will be, will be good and judges shouldn't be so afraid about being more diverse and I, as I said I think demographic representation not, dem- not electing judges but, but it being important that people can identify um, with, with, with judges is, is, is going to be more and more important to their, to their survival and their legitimacy and their credibility Well thank you Sham, you've covered an amazing terrain here tonight and listening to you and the central points of your lecture I was remarking in my mind that very often in this debate on a British Bill of Rights I think English literature could be more useful than law or politics or philosophy because isn't it in Alice in Wonderland we learn that things aren't always as they seem and Orwell teaches us that words can mean the opposite of what you think they do. And even The Big Bad Wolf, that story, teaches us that sometimes it's the very nice-looking grandma, very sweet and innocuous, that can gobble us up and take away all our rights. <laughs> so, <laughs> on that note, I want to draw this evening to a close. I hope you've all enjoyed it. I certainly have. If you want to keep... Uh, up to date with all our many varied uh, events at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, you should sign up to receive our email alerts and or once again follow on Twitter. It's the third time tonight at LSE Human Rights. And now is the piece of information you've all been waiting for that I told you at the beginning I would give you as you've been bristling with excitement at the reception. 
It's going to be on the fifth floor. Don't all run out. The fifth floor of this building, and there'll be wine flowing and lots more discussion. And now it just falls on me to thank a number of people. First of all, all of you for coming and being such a fantastic participant of audience and good-natured. Special thanks to Emma Anderson from Political Quarterly, Zoe Gillard and Helen Wildborough from the Centre for the Study of Human Rights for their fantastic organisation for this evening. Thanks to all our stewards for stewarding so well, to Political, Political Quarterly for asking us to host this event, and our above all to our fantastic, wonderful speaker, Shami Chakrabarti. Thank you.